Well, amen. It's been wonderful to be able to rejoice with you this morning and focus on the person and work of Christ. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue our study through uh, what the Lord would teach us in the great resurrection chapter. Uh, this will be uh, our last in a series in 1 Corinthians 15 for a while. I'll take the next two weeks to focus on text relating to the birth of Christ, but we focus again uh, this morning on a text about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the essential components of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We said that the essential components of the gospel can be arranged around two parts. Uh, if you were to remember, you look down in your text, and you start thinking through this sermon again, start thinking through the two essential components. I said that the two essential components of the gospel are the death of Jesus for our sins and the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. And so we went through uh, verses 1 uh, through 7 in this text and tried to draw emphasis to those. We noted that the death of Jesus was confirmed by something, and so was the resurrection. The death, of course, of Christ was confirmed by the fact that he was buried. His body was disposed of just like any other lifeless corpse. And so for three days... He was in the ground. He was really dead. He was buried. And then the resurrection of Jesus was confirmed by his appearance to multiple witnesses uh, between his resurrection and ascension. So last week, we looked at those witnesses. He appeared to Peter, then to the 12 disciples, more than 500 followers at once, and then James, his brother, and, and, and then to every apostle or sent one. Uh, in verses 1 through 7. But uh, in the text, there was one eyewitness that we have yet to cover, and that'll be in verses 8 through 11 this morning. And so in these verses, Paul humbly deals with the last eyewitness of the risen Christ, and it was himself. In doing so, I wanted to slow down and take a sermon on this because I think Paul actually uncovers more about Uh, himself and the nature of his own call and apostleship as the last person to whom Christ died. And so uh, this morning, if you're physically able to, I would invite you to stand with me as I read through these verses for us out loud. If you can stand for us, please stand in respect and reverence for the word of God. Let me read through this text for us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we see. Lord, I pray that you would work this morning 
I sense a great need for your presence, for your enablement this morning. There's so many things that could potentially distract us from the focus of this text. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a profound work. Would you give all of us the faith to believe what this text says? And Lord, as we uncover Paul's uh, own view of his apostleship that you led him to record for us, I pray that it would both motivate and encourage us this morning. Lord, we're thankful so much for the way you confirmed the resurrection of Jesus through uh, appearing to Paul and for his report on this. Lord, uh, may you use this text to greatly impact our body today for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. As we get into this text, uh, in verses 8 and 9, as we start into the text, Paul gives us a glimpse of what I'm going to call his self-perception or his view of self. You know, a psychologist today would say that one of the greatest problems for people in our culture is that they need a higher view of self. They need a high self-esteem. And that if we somehow can achieve or get to that level, then uh, things will begin to take care of themselves regarding uh, ourselves and how we relate to others. However, as I look at Paul and Paul's perception of himself, both before and after his conversion, I find just the opposite. Paul understood himself to be a sinner, a sinner, miraculously saved by the grace of God. In this text, you see it very easily. You don't have to look far. He was last. He was least. It's all through the text. I want to look at his self-perception and summarize it in two ways in verses 8 through 10. Uh, First, in verse 8, Paul explains that he was called later while dead in sin and in opposition to Christ. So as you look at verses 8 and 9, another way of looking at this is Paul's describing what he was before his conversion. If you're going to look to see what he was before his conversion, you look into verse 8. Look, it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So I look at that phrase. I think there's much about that phrase. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's pretty easy to see. Paul says, last of all, that means he was the last of the appearances that Jesus made on this planet to confirm his resurrection. And Paul's, uh, Paul's eyewitness account is a bit different than all the others. All the others that we've read about were between Jesus's resurrection and the time that he ascended or he went to heaven, Okay. Paul's was different in that the book of Acts describes it for us that it was after Jesus had already ascended in a vision, Paul is able to see and witness the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Matter of fact, turn in your Bibles to Acts 9 for a moment, and I'd encourage you to do that. We're going to look at it now, and then I'm going to ask you to keep a marker in Acts 9 because we're going to look at this text or a text right near it once again a little bit later on in the sermon. And so we go to Acts 9 in our Bible, and we go there because Luke records a description of the appearance that Jesus made to Paul last of all. Look with me at Acts 9 and verse 1. And of course, as I read through here, uh, we'll have a description of a man by the name of Saul, the pre-conversion name of Paul the Apostle. Acts 9 verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the Christian way, men and women, 
he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. This text, Acts tells us that Paul saw Christ in a vision when he was traveling to persecute the church. There were others there who heard Christ. We saw that. The other men who were standing there, they were amazed. They stood in shock. They heard Christ. I think it's at least strongly implied that Paul not only heard Christ, he saw Christ. He had a vision of Christ. And that that vision actually led him to where he was blind for three days until a prophet comes in and heals him. This is the appearance of Christ to Paul the apostle as last of all. Now, Keep your finger or keep something here in Acts. We'll be back in just a little bit. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8. Okay, so Paul's describing what he was before his conversion. Okay, there was this time where Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Uh, But uh, in that first verse, verse 8, there is a part that's a little bit harder to understand. It's a little bit more perplexing, and it is the phrase, he appeared to me as to one untimely born. You see that in your Bibles as to one untimely born. When Paul uses that phrase, it is a metaphor. It's a metaphor to describe the, uh, a little bit more about the nature of the way Jesus appeared to him as an apostle. It, it describes his calling or his conversion as, uh, by using a birth analogy Yet, uh, it is a little bit difficult to know exactly what Paul means by it. And unfortunately, there are a few different ways you can understand this. Uh, Some people come to the text, and they believe that what Paul's describing with this birth analogy as to one untimely born is that Paul's describing himself as a premature birth or child. Okay, so as to one untimely born is like before his due date. If he means something like this, then he's describing the the unusual nature of the appearance that Jesus made to him, the short nature of it, and the fact that he perhaps was in some ways underdeveloped as an apostle or a sent one of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so many people will take the text this way, that he uh, came beforehand, he was a premature child. Others, though, come to the text and say, no, that's not the point, but Paul is actually saying just the opposite. He's late, he's an overdue child. He's an overdue child, and they'll use the analogy that way. So, for instance, uh, one commentary uh, adopts the possibility here of interpreting this uh, birth beyond term and suggests here that what Paul is saying is that his apostleship, his, his appearance that he received that confirmed his apostleship was late and abnormal, like a child who's born after their due date. Those are both two very good and strong possibilities, and I think they led the ESV to translate it this way. However, I think there's a better way to understand it. I'm going to argue for something else. Um, This word could also be used and was used from time to time of stillborn children. 
of stillborn children. I think that's a picture that Paul has in mind here. When Christ's call came to him as a sinner, as a persecutor of the church, it was like, coming, it was like a, something that came to a stillborn child. One of the reasons I hold this is because this, this phrase, as to one untimely born, comes from one word in the original. It's the word ektroma. This word is found nowhere else in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, translation of the Hebrew text in Greek is found in three places. And in each one of those three places, I think it's describing a stillborn child. A stillborn child. So you could write down these references and look them up this week. We're actually going to go to one of them. But you could write down Numbers 12 and verse 12, where Aaron laments the leprosy that God had just given to Miriam, and he uses this word to describe her. She, she in her leprosy, is just like a child who's been born dead or a child who's just about ready to die. You could write down Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 3, and then I'm, I'm going to ask you to turn back in your Bibles to Job chapter 3. So turn back in your Bibles to Job 3, and, and let me try to make this case for you from the Scripture. Job chapter 3. Of course, as we go back to the book of Job, we know something about Job, right? We know that Job uh, had things pretty well under control, but then Satan wanted to test him. And so God gives permission for Satan to test Job, and it's a severe test because uh, Job loses his children. He loses his physical health. He loses his home. And in Job 3, Job laments the day that he was ever born. You remember reading through this text before? Look in Job 3 and verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the, and the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. We won't read the whole text, but look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb, and expire? Look at verse 16. Or why was I not as an ectroma, as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? So because of all these Old Testament texts and the way this word is usually used in the translation of the Old Testament, I want to suggest that when Paul says, back in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, that when, when God appeared to him, it, it was to as to one who was in a timely birth, I, I think you can almost translate, as to a stillborn child. As to a stillborn child. You can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 now. And I'll, I'll close out our discussion of this verse. Paul was a very unlikely recipient of an appearance of Jesus Christ. My preferred translation of this verse would actually be something like this. Last of all, he appeared also to me as appearing to a stillborn child. I think that it's quite possible that perhaps some of the Corinthian opponents of Paul actually would use this word to describe him and his apostleship. 
like this lifeless apostle. I think that before Paul's conversion, his pre-conversion, he would agree with that assessment. He was like a stillborn child. Now, why would he think that? Well, you keep reading in the text. Look at verse 9. He gives us a further explanation of why he would describe him and his apostleship as God appearing and calling a stillborn child. When he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, and here's the reason, because I persecuted the church. And so Paul, as Paul is assessing himself before his conversion, he sees the fact that he was not just someone who rejected the gospel, but he was someone who persecuted those who embraced it. And Paul's describing here the, the unusual nature of his calling as an apostle. He was a very unlikely, hardened, condemned sinner as, and an opponent of the way of Jesus Christ. And so uh, let me invite you, I know we're doing a little bit of uh, playing around in our Bible, going back and forth, but let me go back to that Acts text again. Go back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7 for a moment. And uh, as we go go there, we're going to go there because I I think sometimes those of us who've known the Scripture for a while understand, yeah, okay, Paul was a great persecutor. Yeah, he he did some things and they were bad and they were sinful and so on, and and we just kind of get it in our conscience that we fail to really consider it. And so uh, in Acts chapter 7, we get the earliest New Testament picture of Saul of Tarsus. Acts 7 describes the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit who proclaimed the gospel well. He proclaimed Jesus Christ and the fact that the Jews had crucified Christ. This leads to Stephen's crucifixion. But look in your Bible, Acts 7, verse 58 for the first appearance of Saul of Tarsus. It says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive, actually, uh, verse 59. Go back to 58. It says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In this earliest account of Saul of Tarsus, we see that he's present at the martyrdom of Stephen. Yet, if you go to the very next chapter and you read the first line, Acts 8 and verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul was not just present, but Saul participated in the martyrdom of Stephen. He approved of this. And as you keep reading, it gets even worse. Look look down in your Bible, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and cast them into prison. And we just like read that verse quickly, but that is a strong description of the pre-conversion life of the Apostle Paul. He's ripping men and women out of their homes. He's dragging them into prison. And we won't go to Acts chapter 22, but later on, Paul recalls this in a word of personal testimony. In that chapter, we learn he not only delivered men and women to prison, but that he also consented, that is, he casted a vote for the death of these people. And so to fully understand Paul and his history and his past, what you need to understand is that Paul looked believer after believer after believer in the eye and he voted to put them to death. 
So before Paul saw Christ, he was lifeless, like a stillborn child. Because as the greatest human opponent of the gospel, he had hunted down those who embraced it and proclaimed it as part of taking their lives. Yet, grace pursued him while he was a blasphemer of Jesus Christ. Grace overcame him when he violently abused others. Grace overwhelmed him when he was settled in his sin. And grace can help anyone, anyone who opposes God. Perhaps this week you've interacted with someone and it grieved your heart because they not only reject the gospel, they mock it and scoff it. They make fun of it. They sneer. And I would say this. Don't be discouraged. It's okay. God can break through and rescue anyone. Maybe they sleep through sermons. Maybe they ignore the implications of the gospel for them. God can grasp them. God can get them in their emptiness and their spiritual death and overcome it. And that's where Paul goes next in this text, in verse 10. So in verses 8 and 9, this is what Paul was. Like a stillborn child, completely dead, completely helpless because he had persecuted the church of God. But in verse 10, we read what Paul is as a believer in Jesus Christ, as an apostle. So look in, look in your Bibles, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's look at verse 10. He says there, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God, that was with me. Here, after reflecting on the nature of his call to apostleship in verse 10, Paul goes farther and describes how God's grace worked in him. I love verse 10. I love verse 10. I use it frequently in my own life and in counseling because I think it, it uh, manifests Paul's theology of grace. I mean, this is how Paul understood God and his grace, and so I think it's really good for us to focus on this. I think Paul's theology of grace began to be formed when he was, as an enemy of Christ, was confronted and saved on the road to Damascus. And so then Paul grew to understand that, I think, this is how God works with people. God's grace overwhelms them when they're still an enemy of the Lord. Uh, Now, the way I would express Paul's theology of grace here is is twofold. I, I think what he is describing here First is that his life now as an apostle is an effect of grace. It springs forth from grace. And you see that in the first and the last part of the verse. It's in the first part of the verse, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think Paul's describing his present apostleship at that point. He says, it's by the grace of God. Then you look at the end of the text, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God that is with me. So Paul demonstrates here at the beginning, the end of this verse, that his life was an effect of God's grace. It's by God's grace that he was 
able to be an apostle. It's God's favor upon him, unmerited favor. And Paul not only saw his life this way, he saw the life of believers this way as, as well. Uh, we won't take the time to turn there. Perhaps you have this memorized, but I love to use with believers, I love to use the text, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Remember at the end of verse 12 in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's, uh, he's imploring the Philippians. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There he's describing a way in which the Philippian believers, those who've been changed by Jesus Christ, should should manifest lives that have fruit that's consistent with the salvation that God has given to them. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he gives them a reason why that's possible, a reason for doing that. In the very next verse, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Okay, so what I find in those two verses is uh, the same word with different prepositions attached to it. You have God, or you have a challenge to believers to work out salvation, and you have a reminder to believers that God is working in you. He's working in you to make this possible, and so on. So I think one of the points that Paul's making in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, foundationally, is that the Christian life is, a, is an effect of God's grace. It's something that comes forth from God's grace. It's the first and last part of it. However, the other way he would describe uh, his Christian life and his apostleship is in the middle of the verse. And in the middle of the verse, we see not only in Paul's theology of grace is a Christian life an effect of grace, it comes forth out of grace, but that Paul's life now is also a response to grace. Okay, so you see the two points I'm making. The, and, and they're different points, and they're important to stress for the local church. Not only is Paul, Paul's present apostleship something that comes out of grace, it's also the way he responds to it in his life. So you look in the middle of the verse with me, and he says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I think this is a profound idea that he, he shares here as well. Although Paul realizes that his spiritual life and existence is foundationally dependent upon God's grace and enablement, he responds to it by working harder than any of the other apostles to proclaim and to serve Jesus Christ. I think this is the way spiritual growth works. It's foundationally because of the enablement of God that any believer is able to produce any fruit that is acceptable to the Lord that we can in any way live from Monday through Saturday or even on Sunday in any way which would please God. Foundationally, it's because of the enabling grace of God. However, in spiritual growth, there's also a challenge to believers not simply to let God do everything, but to respond to what he's doing in our lives and to produce fruit that is in line with our Christian uh, conversion and salvation. And so in this text, Paul has two working side by side, Paul and grace. In the middle of this text. I think this is helpful for us as an illustration of what our necessary response to God's foundational grace must be in our lives. And so I ask you this question, I mean, could this be said of you? Could people say this about you, that that person 
works harder than them all when it comes to serving and pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me give just two moments of application here. First of all, to young people. And young people, don't worry, I'm going to get to older people in just a second. Young people, may I say that there is one area in which you should work the hardest in your life. And that is in knowing and serving Christ. You should strive harder for Christ than you would any of your greatest dreams, your deepest ambitions outside of him. Then in any of your academic performances or your sporting achievements or your money-making ventures or your social media commitments or streaks. You know, social media began, what, seven, eight, nine years ago or something like that. But the person and work of Jesus Christ is eternal and timeless. And for all of us, one day, all these things that so easily distract us, these things will burn. They'll be consumed in a moment. At that moment, I think we'll realize, perhaps even before that moment, we will realize that there was one pursuit that was more important than anything else. That is Christ and pursuing him. Older Christians, I think sometimes, you know, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll, we'll give our attention to many other things. We'll journal our retirement resources and map it out month by month, week by week. I've met, I've met Christians who they keep track of it daily. They record it. We'll spend time to painstakingly record every expense that we would make in an entire month, and we write it down, and we do all this stuff. But what we need to remember is in the end, guess what happens to all this stuff? Burns. It's totally consumed. It's all gone. Older Christian, could we say of you that you give as much attention to the person and work of Jesus Christ and applying yourself to know him in his word than you do your retirement investments? You give to these other pursuits. I mean, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can get easily distracted. And I'm just stirred by what Paul says here. I worked harder than them all. Worked harder than them all. Could that be said of you? As we go back to this text and we go back to the end, we're reminded that Although Paul worked harder than them all, he realizes that this was a part of God's enabling grace for him. He says there at the end of the verse, look at the end of verse 10, though not I, but the grace of God that is with me. There's an old commentary written around 100 years ago by two two commentators, Robertson and Plummer. And they picture what Paul's doing here in a very good way. They say, Paul's joy here is like the joy of a child who gives his father a birthday present that comes out of the father's own money. Perhaps you've experienced this before. You've seen this before. A child just gives no reflection at all to where it came from. He's just like enjoying the gift and enjoying the father. But Paul here reminds us that the gift to the father comes from the enablement of the father. 
And so this is a wonderful reminder to us as Jesus Christ. We do have responsibility to work harder than them all, to give ourselves to it. But we need to understand that Paul's life, yes, it's a response to grace, but ultimately it is an effect of God's grace at work in his life. I think this text, and the reason I slow down for this text, I think it's very important. As a pastor, um, weekly, weekly, I, I will talk to people who are struggling in sin, and I, I find often that the struggle in sin comes down to a few different reasons, two of which I think this text really helps us with. Sometimes people come to me and their struggle regarding sin, their struggle to serve Christ, they, they will they'll lament the fact that they feel all alone in their battle against sin. They feel defeated, and they wonder if there's anyone who can help them or any hope. Well, this text reminds us of God's grace. He will not leave us without enablement and strength. We must believe that God gives us grace to overcome it. Other times, believers will come to me, and they will have a wrong view of the Christian experience. I've actually heard believers do this, where they will, in, you know, in a sin area, or some, some area in which they've sinned over and over and over again, in a habitual sin area, they will actually put the blame on God. And they'll accuse God. They'll say, well, you know what? I prayed to God. And I pray to God all the time. All the time I pray to God that he would just take this away. That he would just give me victory. They want this momentary, you know, this, they, they want this magic work of God to take away sins and never struggle with again. I think the problem there is they're foundationally misunderstanding the nature of the Christian life and experience. And this text helps us with that because this text says, yes, God gives you enablement and grace, but you have responsibility as well. You need to work harder than them all. Every day, every day in a Christian experience, it's going to be hard work in our battle against sin. As uh, one of my favorite former professors I had said, he said, it's not the elevator, it's the steps. It's the steps. Every day, no elevators. And so when we wake up from bed in the morning, we should plot and plan how that we might work harder than them all in our battle against sin. And daily, daily, put on the whole armor of God that God provides us to live wisely and righteously. If you get down to verse 11, uh, after Paul's reflection on God's grace in his life, he gets back to the central point of of these verses. So as a way of summarizing things and wrapping it up, he reminds us that all of these eyewitnesses of the risen Christ proclaim the same message. It says in verse 11, whether then it was I, that's Paul the Apostle, or they, any of the other people that Paul, or that, that Christ appeared to, so we preach and so you believe. Okay, so he's, he's basically saying here the gospel that all of these apostles preached and proclaimed was held in common. All the apostles, all the eyewitnesses were saying the same thing and all the believers who accept the message were believing the same things. And so as we close here, uh, men and women, if you've, if you've accepted the gospel of, of, of Jesus, if, if God has revealed Christ's work to you uh, or for you on, on your behalf, then it is time to work hard according to the grace that he gives. I remember as a young boy, a vivid memory 
of learning to work hard. And it comes to me always around Christmas time. My father and my uncle owned a Christmas tree farm in Indiana, Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up, born and raised in Indiana. Uh, Indiana, Pennsylvania is not really known for anything. I think there are two claims to fame are, I think Jimmy Stewart may have been born there. I'm pretty sure he was. They've got his picture and thing everywhere. But then the other thing that Indiana, Pennsylvania is known for, or perhaps unknown for, is it's the Christmas tree capital of the world. You perhaps didn't even know there was such a place. Well, my uh, father and uncle owned a large Christmas tree lot. And so uh, our workforce uh, consisted of three people, them and me. Uh, They were the skilled laborers, and I was the grunt laborer. And so uh, what would normally happen around Christmas time is people would want to come and cut down a bunch of trees, and we would, you know, they'd haul them away to some city and sell them, you know, mark them up and sell them later. So I remember one time in particular, my father uh, explained to me on a Friday night, he says, tomorrow we've got someone coming, and they're buying, and I can't remember the exact number. I mean, it was hundreds of trees. And so he says, you know, we need, we need to do this tomorrow. And so, you know, he gave me some advance notice. And uh, so uh, what, I knew, I, what I knew about that is uh, with the hundreds of trees, I knew that I was going to touch just about every one of those trees. I was going to cut them and drag them across the snow to the end. And so the, the next morning comes, it's, it's early in the morning. You know, it's like 4.30, 5 in the morning. I don't know when it was. And my father comes to me, and I'll never forget what he says. He says, uh, Brent, wake up. It's time to go. It's time to work. Perhaps as we're going through this text, you're hearing the testimony of the Apostle Paul and how God not only enabled him, but how Paul responded to it. Perhaps as you hear the testimony of the Apostle Paul, God is telling you as a Christian, Christian, it's time to wake up. It's time to get going. But God adds something to it. God says, get up, get to work, and I will give you the grace to enable you in the process. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Just a moment of quiet reflection as you consider Paul, his past, as good as dead, persecutor of the church, murderer, blasphemer. But then you consider God's grace in his life. Perhaps you, as a Christian, if you know Christ, need to wake up need to respond to the grace of God in your life and do battle against sin. Perhaps at this moment you could confess to God areas that have claimed your devotion, your time, your energies, more than Christ. And commit to him in prayer that by his grace, This week, you'll give more attention to Christ 
than you will the things that will be consumed on this planet. Let's pray. Father, if the testimony of Paul the Apostle does not stir us as Christians, then we're completely out of touch with the scriptures in this text. Lord, as I described the past of the Apostle Paul, although perhaps I was not a murderer and a persecutor, I saw traces of the same spiritual deadness in my own life before conversion. Without you, I rejected the gospel. Without you, I was dead in trespasses and sins until you allowed me to see Christ. Father, as I consider the 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 apostolic ministry of Paul and his response to the grace that you worked in his life. It, this week, has been a huge challenge and rebuke to me personally. I pray that for each one of us here who are so easily distracted by worldly things, that we would cast those aside and pursue Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.